Welcome back to the show. Very excited about my guest uh, this week. Lena Smart is Chief Information Security Officer at MongoDB. Lena, you have a fascinating history in cybersecurity. But before we start, can you just give me a sense of what is MongoDB? What's the size of your team? And how do you, you know, what is your role there? So I joined MongoDB um, just a bit two years ago. In fact, I think today might be my two-year unit, uh, two-year anniversary. Oh wow! Congratulations! Yeah. <laughs> I understand you. When you joined the team, it was like three or four people, right? Well, they already had people who did security, but it wasn't under a CISO. So I was the first okay. CISO there. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is always fun. It's always, I think, it's always easier to be the first because you're not filling anyone else's shoes. Um, but I've been there for two years at, obviously, MongoDB, a data, database, data platform company, rapidly growing. I think when I joined, there was maybe 800 people. We now have over 2,000. Um, so that's just phenomenal growth in a short period of time. Uh, I'm responsible for cybersecurity, information security, and also governance, risk, and compliance. So I have two distinct teams reporting into me. Um, and I have people based in Spain and London and America. Uh, and so it's it's a lot of fun having a, a global team. Uh, we're also going to hope to expand into Dublin as well because we have a big office over there. So when the offices reopen, <laughs> we'll right. be putting some people in Dublin. So with the growth, with this exp- explosive growth of the company, are you experiencing the same kind of need to keep up with this growth within your security program just to keep track of things? Or uh, uh, does, does the growth of the company add more workload to a CISO? It does, uh, but we do, we've got some very smart people who work alongside us and we're, we're always trying to, I mean, you're never going to have the perfect perfect algorithm. It's like if I hire five more salespeople, I need point X of a security. Right, right. You're never going to get to that. It would be nice, but we're all human beings. Um, but what we do, we obviously work very closely with um, HR, finance, you know, the usual, the usual suspects when it comes to growing a business and growing a team. And we're also aware of people's roadmaps. So I can see if someone has gone down a specific path, if someone wants to open a business in a different country, you know, let's get ahead of that. Let, let's look at the, the cybersecurity laws in whatever country, Guyana, for example, right, right. Um, and see what, what do we have to cover? Are there gaps? And will we need more people there? And do we need compliance in that country? So, you know, GDPR for Europe and stuff right. like that. So, so any sort of global expansion and growth and security has to come along there to kind of pave the way and uh, acquisitions, you're involved in due diligence, you're involved in doing all of that prep yes. work as well, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. that M&A's kind of growth adds adds workload and burden to your, to your thing. It I'm glad you brought up Guyana. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Guyana because I was in the course of researching for this podcast. I, I, um, you and I have like a, a really interesting side side uh, career path, so to speak. We we grew up with form. I'm from Guyana, so my, the education system is the British education system. Prep A, uh-huh. Prep B as kids, and then for standard through standard four, you took a common entrance exam. You get uh-huh. into high school, and then at 16, you take this GCE exam. Yeah, and then you go off to university. In my case, I quit school. And went, off, uh, and went off doing all kinds of like, you know, weekend jobs and so on. Y- your past is similar. Can you mm-hmm. paint, paint a picture for me, you know, coming out of high school, where your head was at and how far away it was from where you are today? Oh, gosh. So, well, I'm 54. I don't, I don't know what age you are. You look to be Same age than- group. 
yeah, same age group, fifty. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Gosh, when I left school, I was sixteen. I left on basically on my sixteenth birthday. Um, I'd been working since I was fourteen. I had a, a job in a shoe shop. I had to get some money, so I worked on Saturdays in a shoe shop. Working uh, class family. Oh, yeah, my single mum. My mum, three girls on her own, you know, God love her. She's still alive. She's still healthy. She's in Scotland. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah, she, she is my role model. And, uh, it, yeah, I mean. Was, gosh, university, they, was university an option for you? Was that something no. that was not an option because no. of economics and the economics at the yeah. time? Yeah, I mean, even though, so I, I'm Scottish, so you had the English-based education. I had the Scottish-based education. Is it similar, though? Very similar, very similar, just different different views and things. Um, and I was put forward a year when I was in primary school. So when I was young, I was put into like the fast stream. And, um, you know, we, we did, I didn't even think about going to university, to be perfectly honest. There was there was no money. There was I knew no I that wasn't an option for you. You just had no. to just like every young lady look for a job. Yeah. And, and even then I, I realized that it was, it was not just what you knew, it was who you knew. And uh, my and what friends, were the job, what were the jobs then? Because I can go back to Guyana at the time and look oh, at young ladies coming out of high school system. They're basically yeah. going off to secretarial school to That's learn it. to type and learn shorthand at the time. Shorthand was a thing. Oh, I did shorthand, but we learned that in school. So I learned to type when I was 12. It was the best right. thing I ever did. Um, I remember it was funny. I was just talking about my the old Pittman exam, right? The old Pittman's you elementary yeah. exam. I did it myself in oh high school. Oh my gosh! Like yeah, Pittman's uh, Pittman shorthand did that. Oh, now I'm getting flashbacks. Um, exactly. But yeah, I, but learning how to type at the time was so I could get a job as a typist. You know, my my auntie was a secretary, and my mum didn't work. She had to raise the kids. But um, you know, my auntie was like, "Oh, it's a great job. You know, it'll be a job for life." And I'm thinking, well, "Okay." And I just wanted to earn money. And so my first job was was as an office junior. So I used to make tea and, you know, get the biscuits out at 11 o'clock. The intern. The uh, modern intern. I was the modern intern. Yeah, but they paid me a wee bit. Right, right. <laughs> um, but that was that was kind of my first introduction. They had a they had a one electric typewriter that I was allowed to use on Fridays just to you know teach myself um, get faster but, and get that that that, that quick soft touch on the, on the electric oh, typewriter. I, won, right? I used to win competitions for my typing. I was very accurate and uh, and very fast, and and I hope I still am. It's one the of kids the today would never know what we're talking about. I know. <laughs> I know when I watch someone hunting and pecking, I don't know if you're the same, but you just want to take the keyboard off them and say, "Just give me the keyboard. Oh, I can yeah, do yeah. it five times faster." <laughs> so, but, yeah, so there, that there was wasn't much choice. There wasn't so, much choice of job. It was office junior or working in a cafe, which you know what, they're absolutely fine jobs and and people who work in in the food industry have so much respect for them. I could never do that. But um, yeah, I ended up having like two or three jobs just to to get the money. And, you know, I used to work at night in a bingo hall and uh, work out money and how much the winnings were in a bingo hall, which was very fast arithmetic. Um, Just you didn't realize at the time that that your options were limited because you were earning money. And so many people were. Yeah. If you, know, you don't have five choices, then that choice is the best choice, right? Exactly. And it's and the you, only choice. I don't know if you felt the same, but I didn't actually know that we were poor. Um, we had neighbours who had less food than us, so we just assumed that we were we were okay because we had we had food most nights. But we had neighbours who had no food, so we would you know we would try and help them. So you just I think yeah, it's only we like when you look back and you're like, 
okay, we we actually had no food on our Saturday or Sunday because the money ran out on Fridays. It was a government, you know, you were subsidised. story. But let me ask you this. When you reminisce on those days and you get those flashbacks, weirdly, those were like the weirdly, the happiest times of my life. The times of your life when there were no expectations, there was no grand dreams. You, you were just, you were what you are. Yeah. You had your team, you had your colleagues. Everybody was just in this mood of just work. I, I don't know. Well, there was no, you weren't, you weren't tethered to the office. Like when you went, it was a nine to five job that I had. So you started at nine, you had an hour for lunch and you went home at five on the dot. And, you know, maybe at one o'clock you got to leave early on a Friday if it was a nice day. And that was a huge thing. You know, you'd have a half day off and then you would always work half day Saturday as well. And that was just normal. But when you went home, it was a different life. It was your family and your friends and you would go out and play and because I was still young even though I was right. working I'd still go out and play with my friends at night and but now it's it's 24-7 you've always got the iPhone you're you're doing the the Macarena every time you go out because you can't find your iPhone and it's it, it's bizarre how quickly we've got used to being tethered I, I use this word tethered but it's true 24-7 24-7 and especially for jobs like ours you know you being a journalist and me being a CISO we're expected to be on 24-7. I don't mind that because, I I mean, I love what I do. I get genuinely, I just, I love what I do. Um, but sometimes I do yearn for the days of just going home and having my dinner, you know, with my mum and watching a bit switching of telly off. and then going to switching my bed. Switching off. <laughs> yeah. just, just the simple concept of being able to switch off for a day or two is such a a, a, yeah. a, a rare thing. Yeah. So. So, so post, post high school, you're kind of just, you know, figuring things out in this environment. Your, your, was it just a series of, would you call it a series of luck? Would you call it just grinding and looking for networking opportunities that kind of got you to the place where, you know, you're a CISO and prior to MongoDB, you were, you were a career CISO at TradeWeb as well, right? So Mm -hmm. there was like, help, help the kids understand, like, not necessarily, you know, what it takes, but, you know, your path and how it kind of meandered here. Yeah. So, I mean, when I started, when I was 16, there was no computers. People didn't have computers. You had a couple in school and uh, it was really only the the boys and people will probably not understand that, but it was really only the boys that got to join the computer club and the chess club. Um, I wanted to join both, but I wasn't allowed. And but that you, know, you didn't even think about causing a stink about it. It was just like, oh well, yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah. do my home economics and learn how to sew. And yeah, yeah. the home ex class and the sewing classes were like the, 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 the domain of the girls. Like even yep. the typewriting class, I yeah. got into the typewriting class because I wanted to hang out with girls. Like that was the, <laughs> the thing, right? It turned out that I eventually became a journalist and it became a big part of a big skill for me. Um, uh, but but the segmentation of educational opportunities there it was just that's just how it, that's just yeah. how it was yeah you didn't even think about it it wasn't something to worry about and so i i think my turning point and this sounds a bit cheesy but it is true i saw um war games uh, the movie war games really mm-hmm. and i guess i was maybe 17 16 or 17 and the, the whole thing with being able to talk to a computer, like via a modem, I mean, I knew nothing about any of this stuff, but I went to the library the next day 
and I started reading books on this stuff and it was way above me. I had no idea what I was reading about modulator and demodulator and, you know, Manchester encoding and all this stuff. Well, you were fascinated by it. I just, it blew my mind because I'd never seen anything like this in my life and I thought it must just be sci-fi. But I thought there must be a some truth to it. You know, I've, I've heard of computers. I know there's these big computers that do stuff. And the fact that there was a computer that could play a game like, you know, Knots and Crosses or Tic-Tac-Toe, as they call it over here, um, or or you could talk to it. I mean, that, that blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And I thought, I have to learn about this stuff. And, and so I actually left my job, which was unheard of where I was. You just didn't leave a job. But I went to college for one year um, because I wanted to uh, get an understanding on just how business worked and how economics worked and how, uh, at that point, Scots law worked. So there was a one-year course that I could do, and I knew that it would help me get a better job. I knew and this that wasn't I would, tech. This was just under just just getting into a man's world. There was no was tech. Just, just just trying to knock on the door of this yeah. man's world, this business just, world, right? Just to see what was yeah, and and even when I was in, even when I went to the college and said, you know, I want to come and do a class, they said, but you have a job. Why on earth do you want to come to college? I said, because I wow. can't. Yeah, it was bonkers, but that's that's just how it was. And so I did my course and I actually won an award. I did really well there. And that actually got me a job with um, Her Majesty's Civil Service. So I actually went to work for the British government. What does government. that mean? What does uh, the Her Majesty's Civil Service means? It means you could work in like the post office or any of the, like what in the US here would be like the federal agencies. Yes, yes. And so I worked for the Department of Employment. Um, so wow. that was that was interesting, and then uh, I realised. I, I guess I have always been ambitious, but I would never have called myself ambitious ever. It was just you did right, right. one thing. And uh, I remember uh, I started uh, working for the Department of Employment, and and I loved it. I mean, it was clerical work, but you you got to meet these really interesting people. And one of the most satisfying things in the world for me was was. Um, working with people who'd been like welders because I worked in a place called Port Glasgow which was where um, the shipyards were, where they built the, Q- the QE2 for example, they built that right, in the, right. so and the, blue the collar, as blue collar Very, as, it as blue yeah. collar as you can get and, and of course the shipyards were closing down because the, the work was being exported and one of the most, and I still remember this, the first time I ever got a guy a job, um, he'd been a welder and um, he loved to cook and so we got talking and I said, there's loads of cook jobs. Why don't you apply for a cook's job or a chef's job? And he's like, I could never do that. And I was like, they're desperate for people. Go go try it. Go on, just try it. And he got a job as a chef. And I remember my boss took me in his car. We'd, I'd, I'd rarely been in a car. Um, we took, oh, my uh, God, you're giving me like goosebumps. Yeah. But my, my boss drove me uh, to the guy's house. His name was Ryan. And it was funny, his name was Ryan. And And... He said, go knock on his door and let him know that he's got this job. And he starts on Monday. And at that point, we actually, and I think maybe still the British government do this, you got a a, a travel ticket, so you got a travel warrant. So you could go to the train station and say, I'm starting a job in this in London on Monday. Here's my ticket. And you would get a ticket to London for free and you'd get like a couple of nights in a hotel. And so I'd got him all this package. I remember walking up to his door and I knocked on his door and he came to the door and he's like, what is it? What's happened? I said, you got the job? And he just burst out crying. I was into, I, I get emotional just even thinking about it and I haven't thought about it for, gosh, about 30 years. But that to me was like, you know, he, I, and it wasn't just me. that There's a whole team who'd helped him get the job. It wasn't just me, obviously. But I just, I felt that I'd really pushed him into outside his comfort zone. And I didn't even know what a comfort zone was at that point. 
but um, he it was amazing and he came back it was so sweet he came back maybe seven or eight months later he, he worked in London so he came back up to see his family and he brought me a cake he baked me a cake and he brought it into the the office and he's like this is for you and we were all crying <laughs> I mean I, I, the, but the story is very much the same as we address the skill shortage in cybersecurity, I mean, you talked about you, you talked about years ago and the satisfaction of finding helping someone yep. transition from being a welder when that, yep. that industry is falling apart yep. to figuring out going and figuring out being a cook because that's where the talent is. In mm-hmm. cybersecurity now, we have quote unquote a skill shortage. Whether you believe it or not, I don't know if we have a skill shortage or we just not hiring properly or we're not recruiting properly. There's all kinds of debates. There are, but at the same time. The lesson you just shared, the story you just shared is, is, is also applicable to us and security leaders who are trying to figure out like, where can I find talent that translates well to cybersecurity? And is, has that been um, uh, a challenge for you? So surprisingly enough, not. I, I, I don't know why I've, I've always been able to find super talented people. I mean, my, my deputy CISO, Chris Sandolo, is just phenomenal um i've never really worked with with brighter people than i have at mongodb and i think it's really important to surround yourself with very smart people um my head of grc anya kowalczyk she is just phenomenal as well so i i think it's obviously not just down to me but it's the jobs and i think it's the way that i sell them i give people a lot of autonomy but i expect a lot back you know, if I'm going to give you the freedom to do the job that you think you can do, do it to the best of your abilities and show me that you can do it well. And another, th- oh, I'm sorry, go. No, but 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 security programs, even security programs like yours, and I know some of the guys on your team, very, very impressive team, you know that. Uh, but it's not, it's not snap a finger and fill every headcount. Oh, it's no. tough to fill headcount with quality people. And that's the, the question is, again, how are you figuring out where 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 am I finding the next welder to slot into this cook slot, right? And yep. where where are you finding them? And how can other security programs figure out where where there are potential fits of folks? So there's a couple of ways. Um, one of them is if you have, you know, like I've worked in a few places, not not that many jobs actually. I've had three jobs since I came to America 25 years ago, um, but my team. At MongoDB is made up from a couple of folks that I worked with in the Power Authority. So I worked for the New York Power Authority. I was a CIO and CISO there. And so you get to know a lot of people and there's, you know, you, there's a lot of friends and a lot of contacts that you make over the years. And then TradeWeb, uh, there was a couple of people who, who wanted to follow me. Obviously, I had a non-compete, so these people followed right, me. Right. Um, you know, so again, you have a posse. So there's a Lena posse. There's a posse. That, there's a Lena posse. Yeah, <laughs> and I love that because that that then. Well, everyone has to have a posse, right? I mean, in in reality, and this is a good lesson as well. In reality, if you're building a program and you're building a team, you want to build a team of people who want to walk with you at the drop yeah. of a hat and want to yeah. go into the foxhole with you at the drop of a hat. And if you if you have a posse, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a positive thing. Yeah, and it, and it also it's positive because it helps me build the team, the core, very quickly. Um, and the lovely part about my posse is that they're all over the world, and so 
I, I know that I can pick up the phone and, and say, listen, I need help in Dublin. And there'll be a couple of people who will either move from London to Dublin or from the States to Dublin. And having that at your fingertips, you know, I never, ever take it for granted. But I've had to work hard at it. I'm not I'm not the most outgoing person. I'm an introvert. I'm not, you know, I'll be the person, like if you go to these things where you have to mingle, I, it's just my worst nightmare. I just don't know what to do or say. Um, but I can always talk to my people. You know, I, I know who my peeps are. And, right, right. Uh, and I, I just, I love when I make that connection. You just know. I mean, like I'm talking about you. I could talk to you all day. Um, you just, I think, know when you meet someone who's like on the same brainwave and the wavelength as you are, and you can just talk about stuff and there's no yeah, yeah. awkward silence. Right. So, and you finish each other's sentences and you already you know, I know what you're planning just based on, on, on you sketching out an idea. I can already figure out, yeah, we've done it before. And historical knowledge and historical experience, oh. an experience of having done it and built it three times before, that that. You can't replace that, it's, right? It's worth its weight in gold. And also having that trust. You know, people are not going to come and work for me in two or three places if I've dissed them or talked badly about them or did something horrible to someone else. I always try and have a, a lot of respect for, for the rest of mankind. And and I think as, as long as you're true to yourself and true to your team, they're going to follow you to the ends of the earth. And, you know, you don't have to be technically brilliant. You don't have to be, you know, a coder since you were five years old. So everyone thinks you're amazing. I think you just have to have an absolute love for what you do, which I do have. I just, I love it. And also just that sense of curiosity that's infectious. So, you know, I'll say to someone, hey, I'm really interested in learning more about, I don't know, encryption or something. You know, I'm not a cryptographer by any stretch of the imagination, but I love learning about stuff. And so then I can go ask people questions and they'll, they'll see that I've done enough, um, you know, investigation so that I'm not a complete idiot about it and I'm not wasting their time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they see that curiosity and that feeds theirs. And it's like, oh, this is awesome. Now I can teach her about stuff and we can talk about things. And, and that just, that kind of feeds on itself. That kind of energy I always thought has just fed on itself. Um, but it is really hard to find uh, good people uh, who who can understand the culture of, of a company. You know, I, I worked in blue collar, you know, I worked in ship. Yeah. I worked in a shipyard. Yeah. I loved it. Um, I used to train the welders how to use computers. That was one of my favorite jobs ever. Um, and then, you know, I moved into the power authority, which was making power. I mean, people that, that, you know, it's fundamental to life. You have to have power. You turn on the switch, you expect the power to come on. Um, and that was a fascinating job. And, and I think one of the some of the the most fun times I had at the Power Authority was going up to the sites and talking to the engineers, and they they were so proud of what they did. You know, they would take me into the bowels of these you know hydro plants and and show me the turbines going round and round. And oh my god, I mean that that I just loved that. I could do that all day. Um, and then I would show them my world, and I would say, "This is a, this is a router, and this is a switch, and this is how they talk to each other." And we actually ended up teaching each other. They taught me how their stuff worked, so I could have a an understanding um, and basically probably a sympathetic ear sometimes as to you know why were you not your training class? You know why did you not turn up for this this you know show and tell when you were meant to see how this worked? Well, you know we were keeping the turbines turning. Um, but just having that give and take, I think, was important because they realised that what they knew was important, but what I was trying to tell them was important right, right. as well. There has to be, there has to be, I think, 
um, just respect for what each other does. You know, you, you can't all be the same. It'd be boring. So we started this conversation talking about education and access to education and, you know, people's station in life and how it just, you know, it, 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 it just defines them and, and it helps them figure out their path. There's a lot, there are a lot of kids trying to get into cybersecurity now, very hot market. It's a place to get in. Uh, but they're confused. Do I go get a college? Do I go get a degree? Do I not get a degree? Do I generalize or do I be specific? Do I, you know, do, should I go niche and narrow? Should I go the route of certifications and get CISSPs? Uh, uh, the poor kids don't, they have, it's just too much. Help, help the kids understand how you view the importance today in 2021 around, for, for, for starters, do you require university degrees for people to get jobs? I do not. Do you I, require I, certifications? No. No, I, okay. I, I mean, you'll, you'll see, and, and my HR people are going to shoot me for saying this, but anyway, um, I would rather talk to someone who, they don't have to be like me. <laughs> not everyone can be the same. But someone has to have that innate sense of curiosity. They have to want to learn. You can't just, you can't go into this kind of job, nor could, I doubt you couldn't be a journalist either. It's almost a vocation. You have to, you have to want to get up in the morning and think, how does this work? What, I'm going to learn about Kubernetes today, or I'm to going to learn it. about, you know, or encryption, you know, or what's AES-256? I heard someone mention that in a meeting yesterday. I'm going to go and learn about that. 99% of the world would just be like, Psh, it's just over them. It's like, I'm just going to go watch some more Netflix. Whereas that that one percent of people who are just bitten by the cybersecurity bug, you know who they are the minute you start interviewing them. You know, you know when yeah. you start talking with them, it's just, it just shines through. And people who go and do degrees, you know what? Hats off to you. That's great. You want to spend all that money and spend four years or six years or how many years does it takes to get your degrees? Good for you. Uh, but I'll be very blunt: the people that I've interviewed for jobs in cybersecurity who have gone to university to learn about cybersecurity are about five years out of date. And it's a wee bit disappointing because they've not kept themselves up to date. You know, you can go away and do your degree and get your bit of paper. That's fine. But you should also be learning yourself at night and reading and keeping yourself up to date at night because there is so much stuff online that's free. I mean, there's just so much stuff out there. So, you know, by all means, do your degree if I know that a lot of jobs require a degree. Uh, so that was what I was going to say. Your peers in Silicon Valley demand it, right? I mean, but why it's so it's so. Well, let's have the discussion about it because you're you have found that you're able to build a quality, mature uh, a cybersecurity organization without this very, very, very strict requirement. So yeah. it it can be done. It, absolutely, it can. So why be are done. your peers so hesitant to open up the kimono, so to speak? I don't know. Um, I, I should probably speak to more of them about this. And of course, uh, almost paradoxically, I work very closely with MIT. Um, I'm a, a founder member of MIT CAMS, and it does it does kind of, you'll, you'll know this saying, it tickles my fancy uh, when I sit in a room with a bunch of PhDs. And, you know, I left school when I was 16. I'm like, these people, they want to listen to what I've got to say. This is bonkers and I'll like phone my mum and I'll say I was in a room with like 16 PhDs today and she thinks it's hilarious she thinks it's oh, wait that's a, this is a this is an interesting point I don't mean to cut but you were talking you were talking uh just pre previously about putting together this team of rock stars around you mm -hmm. and having a posse I don't like using the word rock stars but you know what I mean I know what you mean uh uh, uh imposter syndrome does that ever sneak in? Does that oh ever sneak God. in when you're talking to Sandulo and these guys go on a weird technical deep dive path down something and you're just like, 
No, maybe, well, maybe not. Maybe that's not the best example. But no, talk a no, little no, bit. Is, no, I'm so glad you brought this up because um, imposter syndrome is massive. It's huge. It's a real thing. And it's people aren't thing. talking about. Well, they are starting to talk about. It. I did a whole class on it. <laughs> I actually did. Um, I don't know what we call it. Like an ask me anything, a show and tell, if you like. And I did. I did a whole series of it. We actually did three different talks, and our HR people took it so seriously that they went out and they got someone to uh, do a like a proper. Um, I don't know what you call it. You know the people who they draw as you're talking. I don't. I know they're called artists. Ah, like Pictionary. They 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 um the caricature. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But they're they're drawing it as you're talking it, and it's it was fantastic. And they did three different classes, and it was about imposter syndrome. And it was and I wrote the script, and then what I did was I actually uh, globally, this was through Zoom because obviously we couldn't travel this year, but I did the talk, and we had. All of our engineers were invited. Um, our EMEA people were invited, Australian folks, Indian, uh, our people in India, um, obviously the UK folks, European folks, and then the American folks. And so we did like probably five or six different, uh, I wouldn't call it a podcast because it was live. Um, but just being able to have people in, at my level, at the C-suite level, stand up and say, I didn't sleep last night because I was so worried. Um, I, I was funny. I was just slacking with my assistant, Dawn Charles, who's phenomenal. And I said, I am so worried about this um, this interview today with, with this Mr. Narain. I said, I basically didn't sleep last night because I was Are preparing you for it. I'm telling you, if you saw, I have a 49-inch monitor, oh 16 screens are prep notes for you. Oh um, I have gosh. notes on everything. Why? Because... I don't ever want to be unprepared because I always think in the back of my head, I don't have a bit of paper that says I'm bright. I don't have a bit of paper that says oh Lena went to university for four years and she's got a degree in some, you know, sewing. Um, and it keeps you up at night. It does. And it, I woke it's a up real, every real hour thing. on the hour. I kid you not. I don't. I, I, if for, I this mind, podcast, for this podcast. For this crappy podcast. podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, you know, but it's real and it's all, I mean, this is the stuff that leads to burnout as well. I mean, we talk about imposter syndrome and people really, really struggling to understand that, listen, I belong. I belong here. I belong in this room. I worked at Intel. I went to Intel and then I went to Intel and I would get on some calls with engineers designing things 10 years from today. And the most, the most complicated architecturally you would just listen to these people use words that you've never heard in your life. And I'm like, right. what am I doing on this call? I don't belong in this, even in this organization, I don't belong in the room with these <laughs> folks. And it it really would keep you up at night. I remember, you know, waking up with sweats because I had a call the next morning and I couldn't, I know, I know I don't belong on this call. I don't belong on this call. <laughs> but it's really interesting when these same folks would come to me to help them tell their stories because they have no idea how to tell a story, right? Oh, and God. the simple, the simple uh, my simple, what do you want to call it, uh, 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 super skill is writing and telling stories. And these amazing engineers are coming to me to help them tell their stories. That's then you start to realize that everyone within the cog has an important part. Every spoke in the wheel has a crucially important part. It's hard to wrap your head around it when you're not sleeping at night and you're like uh-uh. stressing about being prepped. 
But can you talk about how you cope with it? Because like the idea of you prepping for a podcast with me just sounds preposterous. Like I don't believe I don't I don't believe like oh, the CISO should be my, nervous about to talking to me. Yeah, no, I believe you. I believe you. I apologize. <laughs> you should not have. I have got well, I, because the way that I see it is it's respectful. If you if, if you are going to the trouble of wanting to talk to me, and I have no idea why I'd be interesting enough for you to want to talk to, but anyway, I. Tristandle said you should talk to this guy. He's awesome. And I'm like, okay, we'll do that. So it's respect. Wait, no, don't. I agree, right? But don't you believe that there's a certain? Because I have the same thing. Like, why? Someone asked me, I and I had this problem recently, and someone really yelled at me about it. I'll, I'll give you the story. Uh, I was approached to keynote the Opcode conference. Matt Switches had this small Opcode conference, and he asked me to keynote it. And as I was prepping and I'm doing my slides and I'm telling, I'm trying to build up a story about the importance of handing over to the next generation of leaders. And we need to make sure that the next, you know, our cybersecurity leaders are doing it. I started my keynote by just talking about, I don't know why they invited me here. Like, who am I to be giving you guys a keynote? And I, I started like just beating up on myself as a coping mechanism for my, for this imposter syndrome and so on. And I remember Runa Sandvik calling me afterward and saying, dude, stop that. Like, not only are you um, doing a disservice to yourself, mm. but you're also, you're, you're not keeping your head up for others like you, other, you know, kids from Guyana who doesn't have any of this. Like, they need to see more confidence from you that you belong there and they can belong there as well. So there's a little bit of a downside of a and a risk of, you know, trying to be real. Yep. And again, having the responsibility of, you know, as a minority or as someone who does not have the traditional path here, yep. what, you know, how do I hold a, a solid head for the rest of folks who are looking? Yep. So in terms of the, the imposter syndrome, and, and just just to close out the discussion about why I prepped so much to talk with you, because I did a whole bunch of um, research on you. Yeah, I listened to about five or six of the, the calls that you'd, you'd had with other people, and I thought, oh, my God, if you ask me any of those questions, I'm just going to burst out crying, or I'm just going to say that my <laughs> internet just broke. <laughs> <laughs> Are you kidding me? So it was... So I might have over and 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 we've been I've been recording for thirty three minutes and fifty five seconds. You haven't felt that yet, right? No, I've been loving this. I could do this all day, yeah. and I don't know why I got so worried. But I and I'm sure you think the same way. If I hadn't prepared, I would be waiting for that other shoe to drop. I'd be waiting yeah, yeah. for you to ask me a question that I didn't know how to <laughs> answer. And it's, it's a horrible feeling because. But there's a, there's there's nothing wrong with saying, dude, I don't know how to answer that question. Like, yeah, like we true. need to get, we need to get our heads. And, and I know you feel the same way like I, I do, know. because I keep, I beat myself up all day. I've never written a story that I, that I, that I felt like when it's published, everyone likes it. There's always something wrong with it. Always. But then don't, but don't you think though, if you do print the perfect story or if you have the perfect day, it's like, what's the point in getting up the next day? You have nothing to strive for. So true. it's, it's a double-edged sword. So I actually quite like the fact that, I, I I mean, some people might say I over-prepare. I don't think so. I prepare just enough in my head. And if that yeah. meant that I woke up every hour on the hour, then so be it. Um, but it also, it's also the best trait for a CISO to be well, over-prepared. It, we're, we're very, right? very Your security thorough. program needs to be built on exactly. preparation, thorough preparation, right? Yeah. 
exactly. And and in terms of the um, the imposter syndrome and the way that I I try to go over it because I don't think you can ever go over it hundred percent is you just meet it head on. It's like if I'm worried about not being prepared for a meeting, prepare for the blooming meeting then. It's like you you're go. answering your own question. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're worried about talking to someone new, buy a book on how to talk to people. I actually have books in my library. I see my library behind me. Um, I have books on how to break the ice at parties. I don't go to parties, so that's not a problem. But if I ever had to go to one, you had a few icebreakers in your back pocket, right? You can talk about the weather. And my my partner Phil, he he works in a, a hedge fund, and he says people want to talk to you. He said because they want to hear your accent. He said because yeah, it's true. not usual. You know, there's Scotland's a tiny country, and there's not. Many I used Scottish to be ashamed people. of my accent for a long time. I used to be ashamed of my accent no. until people respond to this podcast and say, "Oh, I love your Caribbean accent. Keep podcasting some more." And uh, again, it comes down to confidence, right? The imposter true. syndrome also has a lot to do with your own confidence and your that's own. True. And and there's the opposite of imposter syndrome, if we're being honest, is the over the over overconfidence um, or something yes <laughs> the overconfident asshole let's be let's yes. call it what it is right and there's a handful of there, there are a handful of identifying those on your team as well where you want to find folks who are outgoing and, and yeah. confident and the, but you can be outgoing and confident and, and not be a an yeah. overconfident person yeah you, you you don't need to take it that far sometimes <laughs> and yet they that do. means something what is the best part of being a CISO and what is the worst part of being a CISO? The best part at MongoDB is being able to do what I know I need to do to get the job done. There's not much bureaucracy and it's not like a move fast break things. That's just, that, that's just silly now. Um, it's, it's be pragmatic and I've, I've been very careful to not be the team that says no. We say yes, right. but Here's the five right. things you should be aware of, or here's the risk analysis, or you know, I've I've made it very very easy for my team to move quickly when they have to. We know we have policies in place, we've got rails in place that keep them on the on the, the, the path, but they also know that we can't be blockers. And if I get right. a call from someone saying, "Hey, Chris Sandalo's taking five weeks to read this," I mean that would never happen. But let's right. pretend it's like you know they know I'm going to come back in them and say. Well, why is this taking so long? Is there something that I'm not doing right as, as a leader? Do we have some process that we need to look at? And we're, it's iterative. You know, we're actually in the midst of looking at one of our onboarding uh, processes because it's taking too long. It's like, you know, we need to look at each process and see where we can refine it. And, I, you know, you asked earlier about getting bigger. That's definitely one of the, you know, one of the, the, the burdens of getting bigger, if you like, is it gets a wee bit bureaucratic and you have to kind of, smooth over that and just make it you know you're not four guys now a loft and a startup anymore it's 2000 people you know market cap of what 17 billion dollars i mean it's exactly like, this is we're, we're this the real deal this right. is the this is the real deal this right is the real deal yeah and you know we're a public company and we have a board to answer to so get your ass in gear and do your job and do it properly um so yeah it's it, it, it is. It, it can be difficult sometimes to to keep the bureaucracy away, um, but as I say, I do not want to be the, the CISO that says no. I've met CISOs like that, and it's not a pleasant experience. But 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 the CISO's role in security organizations' role is not necessarily. To, it's not never to say no because you have to enable the business, right? Exactly. Enabling the business, not only enabling the business, but having security 
yeah. be the driver of that enablement and see where, where security has now become a, 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 a monetizable thing. So within organizations, even getting your assurance and your security program right is a crucial, crucial part oh, of it. Absolutely. I mean, we work so closely with our product team, um, our chief product officer, Sahir Azam, a fantastic guy, uh, him and his team, they, they work so closely with us. Um, we're working on things like field level encryption and they just get it. You know, they know how to sell this stuff. They know how to advertise this stuff. And then behind it are the experts like Ken White, who's our, our cryptographer. Um, these are these are people at an expert level that I've just never met before. I mean, just their, their depth of knowledge is phenomenal. And they're willing to sit with my team because they know my team is new. They're willing to sit with us and teach us. And, you know, we do like ask me anything and we do like lunchtime uh, meetings where we can, you know, Ken has done one of these meetings with us where he will teach people as much as he can on here's field level encryption. Here's how it's good for customers. Here's how it's good for this. Here's how it's good for that. And people will be able to ask questions that they might otherwise be, you know, to your point about right, imposter right. syndrome, they might not want to ask them because they don't want to look like an idiot. Whereas when we're all in the room, Ken's the genius for all ideas. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. Does post-pandemic work from home and, and distributed workforce now make it a lot more difficult for you to not say no to things? Uh, and, and I know there's like, I, I'm talking to CISOs and people defending organizations that say, dude, we, we have to start saying no a lot more to a lot of shadow IT and some of the things where, you know, we, we're not responsible for managing someone else's home network. So, I mean, how do you how do you enable the business and not be the organization that says no in a pandemic work from home world when attack surface have expanded in such a way that now you're just like, how, how do you balance that? So, and again, it's, it's down to the teamwork. I think we've got a really good IT team. Uh, and so we work very closely with them. They've hired a couple of real experts as well who understand who understand your world as well, like audiovisual. It's not even it's not even security we have to yes. be involved with now. It's enabling all these it's little the productivity things. And the the, the the microphone I'm pointing at that you can't see. But anyway, you know, all, all the stuff that we hadn't thought about a year ago. It's like, what, you know, should I be plugging in this USB mic? Because I don't know who's listening to my conversation or, you know, we're using Slack and we're using 24-7 Slack. It's like, who's listening in? And, and, and again, I think it's down to, it's, I think it's down to clarification of, of people's roles and responsibilities. That's one thing. And it's, that's a, a big mouthful for people just who should, know better they should just do the right thing and so in terms of shadow it i think by and large as a company folks tend to understand that our it people are are, are very much working very hard and they're trying to do a really difficult job from home and so we've actually seen and this is almost paradoxical but we've actually seen i would say an uptick in people saying hey listen i want to i want to do this add-on do you think that'll be okay rather than just going and doing it they're now right, saying, right, right. you know, I don't want to break my home setup because it's my office. I can't break it. And I know if I put this add-on on, something bad might happen. I'm going to have to face up to it. I'm going to have to tell someone. So you think work from home has forced some employees to be a lot more responsible about the crap they put on their work machines at home because they can't walk in and get it fixed. And yes, just, that, just to you, dis you put that far more eloquently than I could. But yes, I, I do think so. And I think that, I know I sound a bit Paul. That's interesting. Paul Is that something you can measure? 
Is that something you can measure at scale to like define? Because I wanted to get in before I let you go. I want to talk about user education and like spending on user education because you've publicly been a big proponent mm-hmm. of educating your workforce and, yeah. and, and, and user education. That has actually been a big spend for CISOs. It's a big part of their budgets trying to figure out, you know, whether they use technology and how they handle their user education program. At the same time, there's so many breaches with people just clicking on stuff, people just clicking on stuff. Uh, spear phishing is still the biggest issue in, 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 in these big APT attacks or whatever. So in my opinion, it just hasn't worked and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that a reasonable spend? And should we as an industry, as a computing industry, not get to a place where people click on everything and the technology protects them? Why are we, why are we telling people not to click on a link when clicking on a link is what you do on the internet? So, and I, I, I 100% get where you're coming from because it, 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 it is frustrating to me that we're not at that place yet. My, you know, my mom is, is she'll be 75 this year and she's, she's of that age where everything on the internet is trustworthy. Like Facebook, that <laughs> everything there is true and she'll click on anything and yes, it, but she this doesn't is, understand. This is what we should all do. She this doesn't is what understand, right. <laughs> But but we're not there. We're you know we're not in that world where everything is trustworthy online. And unfortunately, I don't know that we ever will be. But can't you can't you design your network to be that way in a way where people can click on things and it's not as devastating? Right. You know what I'm saying. Well, like, that's it what we're, shouldn't. Yeah, and that's what we're trying to do at MongoDB. But back to your your previous point, their home network is their office network at the moment. And you know your home network is just the worst. Uh, actually, my, myself and Dawn, my assistant, uh, we we did a training class for our executive assistants because we figured that the people who have access to the most information isn't really the execs themselves. It's usually their EAs because the EAs have access to everything. Target the um, EA and target the EA and the chief of stuff. I, oh yeah, I, absolutely. And you've got the keys to the kingdom. And so we kind of start. We that was the first people that I trained when I moved here. I you know I wanted to meet them. I wanted to see what they had access to, and I wanted to see what their view on how we could actually further secure it was. And one of the things they asked for was training. They said, "We said we know that if we click on a link, it can do bad things, but we want to know what can happen." And so we don't just give people training. It's like, you know, don't click the link or, you know, it's all red and flashy and it just annoys you. It's like, this is what could happen if you click on the link. So we, you know, we've, we're using uh, No Before, so, you know, Kevin Mitnick's mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. So we're using them. Um, I just like them. They're actually not that expensive. It's, it's probably half a headcount per year for their training class. And that's for over 2,000 people globally in 15 different languages. Um, you know, I I keep going back to that saying in my head, like give give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. You know, teach me to fish. Right, right, right. That kind of it's a wee bit of a wee bit silly, but it. it but is it measurable? Hmm? Is it is it measurable? And have you been able to measure it? Let's say, uh, 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 user education campaign quarter to quarter or year so to you, year, and can you see people are less likely to click on these types of things over time? Are you are you tracking and measuring we are, that? We are tracking that, and I'd love to, you know, maybe one day we do a talk Yeah, on, we can on sit training. in person. No, no, no. Uh, uh, offline, offline, I'm curious, because I want to yeah. learn about how you're doing this. A oh, lot no, of folks absolutely. Are, yeah. yeah, so we're we're starting to gather those stats now. But it's what measurable. Doing this? Hmm? this stuff is all measurable. Oh, absolutely. And we, But we've only been measuring it for probably three to six months, and so we're still, you know, we're gathering that data. Um, but I, I think 
the way that we've done it, we did two things. So we've got this this measurable training program, if you like, kind of the old fashioned way of here's a phishing campaign and, you know, here's what will happen if you click on the link. And we took it one step further and said, you know, here's how you can help secure your home network. Uh, you know, here's how you can help your grandparents stay secure online. So you kind of, there's a wee bit of skin in the game now. You know, right, your right. parents are involved, your grandparents are involved. But then also what we did was, as part of the training and education program, is I set up a security champions program. I've always been, you know, you asked at the beginning, how do I get a good team? I don't just take people who've done security. I have people who worked in HR or people who worked in education or people who did customer support who have an understanding of the business but know nothing about security. And it's easier for me to take someone with an understanding of, you know, eight years of MongoDB business and bring them into my security team and teach them, you know, red teaming, blue teaming, send them off in St. Sans classes, you know, go do your GIAC, go do this, go do that. To me, that business and that trust that they've built with the folks who work at MongoDB, I, I couldn't hire for that. Yeah, you know, you can. and so, and then that also then has the added added benefit of we now have over eighty eight zero security champions globally who work in all different aspects of the business, but they are now that security champion for their group. So when the phishing campaign comes out, they'll be like, "Oh, you know, we learned about that. You know, we meet like every two weeks for the SCP." Right, right. So, you know, they're rather than coming back to the security team, their teams are going to go to their security champion. There's again, there's skin in the game. There's somebody that they know that they sit beside every day who's getting some training from the security team to be their kind of, I wouldn't call them an expert, but they could be if they wanted right, to be. Right. And it gives them enough to get to be getting on with. Um, but this is a more holistic look at the user education piece, which is encouraging because the user education piece in most companies is uh, uh, here's a phishing email that usually looks like something that's happening in the news lately. They get people to click on it and then they punish them by getting them to look at the 45 minute video because you clicked on something. That's what passes for user education in a lot of organizations. It's it's awful. And and I I know that we've all worked in places before where um, I had these, I had this conversation once. So it went along, along the lines of, well, we should fire people who click on a link three times. And I said, okay, let's just talk through that. Um, what happens if our CEO clicks on a link three times and there was just silence? Show him the data, you'll see the CEO is actually the guy who's clicked on it six times. Yeah, exactly. I said, you can't can't have arbitrary rules like that. It either works for everybody and you fire the CEO. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but like a lot of our shadow IT problems is driven by executives using bad messaging apps and so on. Oh, I could tell you some horror stories. Before I let you go, you did the last. The, you did. You didn't answer the last question around what was the worst part of being a CISO. Oh, is it? Is it the stress and the? Do you have stress and anxiety about assumed breach and oh my gosh, no. am I going to be in the headline tomorrow? You don't have no, that. I worry about talking to journalists. Um, <laughs> I worry about. Yeah, I mean, I worry about things that I have control over. You know, I don't have control over the entire security world. I worry that there's so much hate on the internet that people are killing themselves over it. And I and I hate when people ask me as a CISO, one of the worst parts of my job, I guess, is when I can't fix someone's problem. Because, right. I mean, it's funny, and I'm, I, I don't know if this happens to you, but, um, you know, sometimes I'll get a call like, uh, 
can you come and fix my home Wi-Fi? It's like, well, why would you think I would know how to do that? <laughs> you know, I can't fix oh, yeah. fiber optic cable that's been snapped because your kid snapped it with scissors. You know, I yeah, no, not doing that. Um, so I think I think the worst part is having having a lot of experience in the security world, but still not being able to fix all the problems. Like, you know, why do we still have passwords? Why? Why do I have to have 147 separate passwords? Why? <laughs> And then lastly, as a CISO and as a head of a security program, you get to see, or the folks on your team get to do a lot of the reviews of all the security technologies, all the fancy blinky boxes and all the snake oil and all the amazing bits of technologies. Out of that, without getting into companies and plugging any companies, what areas of innovation you see that is pretty promising and enticing and things that, you know, like an area of, of security defense innovation or technology that you like or you're impressed with? Something that I think really helps my Damn, I can't even stump you with one question. Mm-hmm. See, you're overprepared. I, I couldn't know. stump you with one question. No, no, I've got, I've got my answer written <laughs> down already on this. Um, my no, just, answer, you're just curious about what, what you're seeing folks are pitching to you that let look interesting. The really interesting stuff that I'm seeing is, and this might sound boring, but there's a reason behind it, is automation of governance risk and compliance programs. So gathering that evidence that auditors want to see because it takes so much time from our engineering group. It's just not Is fun. it automatable though? A lot of it is, but therein lies the rub because now engineering's got to trust us. They've got to give us access. You know, they've got to give us read-write access, sometimes at root level to gather this information. So it's getting that balance right. You know, do we Very tricky, root? right? Yeah. Or do we, you know, what's that third-party tool that we're using? Is it all in the cloud? What what other avenues of vulnerability does that open up? But I think if people can get, can get their head around that, and I've been talking to a few startups about this as well, there's a lot of interest and stuff coming down the pike. Um, but it'll be interesting to see where that goes. I think that could be a huge revenue spinner, but it has to get done right. Otherwise, that's your pivot point. You know, that's your that's your keys to the kingdom. And the friction point is that communication and trust from engineering, right? To give to give you that level of yeah. rewrite access to to, yeah. to to make the data actually was, meaningful. We're touching their baby, you know. We're, right. we're we're going after their their, uh, you know. That's a tractable problem. Is that a solvable problem? I think it is. I think when you when you but it has to be measurable. You have to say, look, this is going to save you two headcount a year if you let us automate this this these three things. You've got two people back who can do innovative things instead of gathering evidence for a, you know, a Fed ramp audit or something. Right, right. You got to come back. We have so much to touch on. Oh, I want to figure out how do you find, how do you find people to build these automation tools? How do you retain them in Silicon Valley when sal- salaries and RSUs are through the roof? How are you competing in this environment? Is Silicon Valley broken? Like there's so many things we got to talk about. Please come back. <laughs> And next time you come back, you'll be banned from preparing. No, no, no Google tags. I don't no know Google how you're going to do that. <laughs> we'll, we'll just sit and shoot the breeze. That will be fun. I really, really enjoyed this, Lena. Please come back wonderful. another time. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much.